0: Did you know that In Social Work now has an online mailing list to receive updates on newly released podcasts? Go to our website www.insocialwork.org and click on the envelope icon near the center right of the page and just above our most recent episode. You will be taken to a new page where you can sign up to stay in touch with In Social Work. Hello, I'm Charles Sims traumatic brain injury or TBI there are all kinds of ways that an individual can receive this type of injury today the topic normally centers on the injuries suffered by military service personnel or individuals involved in contact sports the result of a TBI can be substantial requiring intensive long-term intervention or it might be so subtle so as not to be considered serious by the injured person. Though subtle, the injury or injuries are known to have an impact on how that person may function in the world around them. Therefore, increasing effort has been directed to better understand traumatic brain injury. While working on a research project, today's guest was reviewing files of adults who had been incarcerated in the Kansas State Prison System when he noticed an emerging theme. A large number of the individuals reported circumstances that would lead one to suspect a traumatic brain injury. Chris Vey is a doctoral student at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work. Prior to his enrollment in the doctoral program, Mr. Vay worked at the University of Kansas School of Social Welfare as a data manager on a project that evaluated a statewide prison reentry initiative for incarcerated adults. His current research interests include community reintegration and the desistance process of both juvenile and adult incarcerated populations, as well as transdisciplinary approaches to social work research. In this podcast, Mr. Vay discusses the pattern he observed in the reentry data of early life head trauma in those incarcerated adults. He also discusses his systematic review of over 20 studies looking at head injury and incarcerated people. Mr. Vay makes the argument that early head trauma can play a role in behavior that can lead to incarceration and that there is likely a significant number of incarcerated youth with TBI exposure. He also describes how the injury can interfere with their pro-social functioning and lead to increased odds for problematic behavior. Mr. Vey identifies valid tools to assess for TBI history, as well as evidence-based interventions that the social work practitioner can employ in their work. Finally, Mr. Vey argues for universal screening of youth involved in the criminal justice system. I interviewed Chris Vey for this podcast in October 2013. Welcome, Chris, to the podcast. I do have a question that I think our listeners would really like to hear is how did you come to this work? How did you get started working with this particular population and talking about possible traumatic brain injury?
1: Prior to entering the PhD program at the DU Graduate School of Social Work, I was at the University of Kansas School of Social Welfare for four years. And I worked as a data manager on a project that evaluated a statewide prisoner reentry program for incarcerated adults. And during the course of my duties, one of the things I was asked to do was to review case files for participants in the reentry program that covered their time while they were incarcerated and then while they were on parole As I read these case files over time, they included background summaries that described like major events leading up to the individual's incarceration. And the more of these summaries I read, the more I began to notice that they mentioned a fight or a fall or a motor vehicle accident or some other type of event where they said either they blacked out or they were unconscious for some period of time. And it seemed like it usually occurred, you know, when they were like seven to 13 or, you know, like even a little later, maybe 16 or 17. And just, I began to think about this anecdotal pattern that I began to see. And it made me think about whether there were the existence of these high rates of concussions actually led to the severe head trauma that resulted, whether they were associated with these individuals' later involvement in the criminal justice system. And since it seemed to occur earlier in life, It seemed appropriate to look at youth that were involved in the criminal justice system and to see whether there could possibly be interventions to help address issues from traumatic brain injury in this population. And actually, when I started the PhD program, when I started to look deeper into this, there's actually a really great article by two social work researchers, Brian Perrin and Matthew Howard, and they actually did a high, almost a complete census of individuals in the state of Missouri, youth that were incarcerated in Missouri, and they actually found a fairly significantly high rate of moderate to severe TBI among youth involved in the criminal justice system. So that just kind of then sparked my interest even more.
0: That's very interesting, particularly that there has been some background work that kind of point us in that direction. Many people, when they think about traumatic brain injury, they think about car accidents or, in the case of war, people being exposed to explosive devices and that kind of stuff. How do you define traumatic brain injury and particularly traumatic brain injury in this particular case when you're talking about the kids that you've worked with?
1: It's actually a really hard and fairly amorphous subject of how exactly to define traumatic brain injury, especially history of traumatic brain injury, but based on my review of the literature and kind of looking at how different studies ABS has defined it, I've come up with a three-part definition, which basically says, first, TBI is an injury to the head that results from a force or trauma that originates externally from the individual, and this trauma upon the brain most commonly results from a blow, jolt, blunt shock, impactful motion, such as acceleration, deceleration, or a penetrating head injury, and in conjunction with this trauma event, there's usually some type of disruption or impairment in the functioning of the individual's brain. And this impairment in functioning can actually vary quite greatly among TBI incidents. But if like the National Institutes of Health have uh, said, you know, the deficits can result in physical, cognitive, and psychosocial functioning, and that's the more immediate consequence of the traumatic event. And then third, the days, weeks, months leading after the event, the individual usually experience a range of symptoms including headache, disorientation, unconsciousness, amnesia, seizure, skull fracture, intracranial lesion, or even death. And again, these different levels of symptom severity experienced following TBI depend a great deal on the type of injury and then also that individual's personal medical history Especially important is the number of previous TBI events that individual may have experienced. And usually the severity of a TBI event is categorized in terms of the length of unconsciousness an individual experience following the event. And usually a mild TBI, or what's usually commonly referred to as a concussion, usually has a loss of consciousness ranging from a few seconds to a few minutes or even 30 minutes And then you move up to moderate TBI, which has a loss of consciousness of 30 minutes to 24 hours. Then the most severe kind, an individual can be unconscious for greater than 24 hours.
0: Wow. So that's interesting and significant. When you did your research or when you were looking at these youth, how did you do that? Did you interview them or was it a review of the literature using your framework as a way to help you understand that? I'd be curious about that.
1: It was mainly a review of the literature and particularly I've been trying to do a systematic review of all studies that have tried to measure traumatic brain injury history, either incarcerated juveniles or adults. And I've come up with about 22 studies That have done this type of research in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Australia, specifically with people that are incarcerated. And again, what's really hard to get at when looking at these studies is comparing what TBI is across the studies. Because most researchers have used just like a self-report question to ask respondents It will be a sit-down interview with an individual, and they'll ask them, have you ever experienced any event of a loss of consciousness for a specified period of time in your life? For example, Perrin and Howard, in their article, they asked respondents, have you experienced a loss of consciousness for 20 minutes or more? And there was actually a meta-analysis also done by a psychologist by the name of Thomas Ferrer, who's at a BYU in 2013, And they actually noticed that there's so many varied approaches to measuring TBI history that really making comparisons across studies is really difficult. And basically what I've come to find or what I would like to propose in the article is that that there do exist reliable and validated tools of measurement for TBI history, such as the Ohio State University Traumatic Brain Injury Identification Method, in the traumatic brain injury questionnaire. And they've actually both had a reliability and validity analysis done on them, but that's mainly been only done with military personnel and adults involved in the criminal justice system. They still haven't validated it within a population of incarcerated youth, but I feel like the field needs to move towards a more systematic way to measure it so you can kind of get a better grasp of the problem and not being relying on just simply like a one question, yes or no. Did you experience a loss of consciousness?
0: Are they long assessment protocols? Or is it something that a social worker could do as part of their normal assessment process?
1: Absolutely. They're actually fairly straightforward in just a very systematic way. So, for example, the Ohio State University TBI identification method kind of gives an outline of how to identify a broad list of injuries and then how to start to narrow that down and really drill down into the events that resulted in some type of loss of consciousness. Because a big issue is that most incidents of TBI or concussions are never documented officially anywhere. A researcher by the name of uh, Karen Hux and her colleagues in 2009 actually detailed that 85% of all TBIs or concussions are never documented. So when a youth comes into the criminal justice system and you try to administer a TBI assessment, can be difficult to be 100% for sure because there's nothing to truly validate against. These are just very systematic methods. So you're definitely covering every possible
0: incident that may have resulted in a traumatic brain injury. At least you're really exploring the question which may not have been adequately explored earlier.
1: Exactly. It kind of moves beyond that yes, no, and kind of gives an individual a framework to talk to an individual about their history of maybe experiencing these events prior to them coming into their office for the assessment.
0: I see. Given the fact that you looked at a number of these studies and your own work and looking at some of the case studies that came across your desk, I was wondering, did you walk away or did you come away with any idea of prevalence or how significant of an issue this is? For policymakers, that becomes really important, as you well know. They're going to devote the resources, they're going to want to be thinking that, you know, this is a significant issue that we need to pay attention to. And of course, then there's the follow-up question, then what?
1: again, it it starts off with that study by Brian Perrin and Matthew Howard, who did the census of basically all incarcerated youth in Missouri. And they found that 18.3% of all incarcerated youth reported a moderate or severe TBI. So they self-reported that they were unconscious for 20 minutes or more. And I've actually then tried to pull data from large epidemiological surveys conducted by the National Institutes of Health, and also one done up in the northeastern United States. And they found prevalence rates for TBI. Again, the definitions are a little fuzzy, but they found rates between 3% and 8.5%. So that's at least three, four times greater within the incarcerated youth that Perrin and Howard found. And then most recently, Ferrer and colleagues, they actually conducted a meta-analysis on five studies measuring TBI within incarcerated youth, and then youth that were non-incarcerated in the US and the UK, and they found that the incarcerated youth had a 3.38 times higher odds of having TBI than controls. So fairly systematic studies have shown that the rate of TBI is quite high in this
0: population. That's interesting because if I'm a policymaker, it says that I've got a significant issue with the population I'm providing service to. So a person has a TBI, let's say, and they've had that experience. How might that manifest itself or might lead to someone becoming more likely to find themselves in a law violating scenario or incarceration?
1: So when researchers have looked at traumatic brain injury and where in the area that it most often impacts, It's usually an area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is the area kind of right behind your forehead and like kind of down below your eyes, that front area of your brain. Because usually when a TBI occurs, your brain actually will move within your skull a little bit. And most of your skull is actually fairly smooth, except for the area right around your eyes. There's actually some like jointed or pointed bones there that are more likely to create injury but aside even from direct injury on that area traumatic brain injury can also affect the connections between cortical areas such as the prefrontal cortex and subcortical areas you know such things as like the emotional center of the brain or other more less conscious cognitive processes And psychologist by the name of Lawrence Steinberg, he's actually done some theoretical work around the effect of prefrontal cortex on adolescents and youths as they age into young adults. And he's found that the prefrontal cortex actually works to moderate risky behaviors exhibited in adolescents and young adults. And basically, this is created by the fact that the prefrontal cortex begins to obtain greater control over and coordination with the subcortical systems and kind of starts to allow inhibition of impulsive and risky behaviors that maybe were more likely to occur when they were 13, 14, 15. So youth that may have had damage to the prefrontal cortex or the connections between the prefrontal cortex and other areas of the brain, and Steinberg calls this the cognitive control system, these effects from those injuries may actually make the youth more likely to exhibit impulsive or risky behavior just because that inhibition has been broken down by the injury.
0: Wow, so for me then thinking out loud that it makes the possibility that the individual, the adolescent may find themselves in involved in criminal behavior or behavior that's against the law, they might be more likely to become involved because of impulsivity or those executive functions, not kind of mediating those behaviors.
1: Yeah, the executive functions. And I feel like it's more of an
0: indirect effect,
1: especially for youth returning from incarceration, because a lot of these tasks that, or these processes that are associated with the prefrontal cortex are such things as like self-control, planning, organizing, problem-solving, and goal-directed behavior. And when a lot of these youth come back in the community, many of the tasks they'll need to complete to stay out of the correctional system, for example, you know, attending school, engaging in treatment, bonding to other pro-social institutions, is made more difficult by the fact that they may have some difficulty maybe having self-control or maintaining a goal-directed behavior to obtain a specific goal. So what interests me the most is not so much like something that would be really pronounced from a TBI, but it's those effects from TBI that may become more noticeable as the youth starts to engage in more complex tasks and how their inability then to engage and be successful at those tasks in pro-social situations then actually decreases their ability to be bonded to individuals that and have mentors that will allow them more pro-social opportunities just from the fact that they're having less opportunities to engage in pro-social behavior, that increases the likelihood that they may engage in delinquent behavior. So I don't think it was necessarily like a direct effect. It's more of a another important risk factor to consider and kind of an overall risk and protective framework that can interact to increase the odds of an individual. Uh, potentially incarcerated.
0: Oh, I see. It's, so it's a much more global kind of thinking that we need to have in this particular case.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not like youth has one traumatic brain injury, then they're going to end up incarcerated. It's more how does that event in the nuanced effects it can have on an individual's ability to participate successfully in school with pro-social peers, then how does that then result in the type of bonds they create in the community and what type of behavior that's reinforcing for that individual?
0: I see. This leads me to the next question. You know, we live in a time when evidence-based practice is an important part of professional social work. So I'm curious, do you know of, or can you recommend, or are there evidence-based interventions or even interventions in general that might be effective or efficient in working with adolescents who have traumatic brain injury?
1: Yeah, there are some actually some really great interventions that have come out of the cognitive rehabilitation literature. And most of them have actually only been centered in a clinical situation. And they're actually fairly straightforward. For example, one's called goal management training. And basically the intervention, all it existed of was, you know, helping individuals to learn five simple steps of about stopping to assess the current situation, deciding on a goal, then actually choosing the goal they want to pursue, and then breaking that goal down into sub-goals, and then remembering and devising strategies to accomplish each of those sub-goals as they move towards the ultimate goal they wanted to reach. The stuff I've seen in the literature is fairly, I feel like wouldn't be very difficult to integrate into a community-based intervention that's working with incarcerated youth or any youth involved in the criminal justice system. Because right now, a lot of these interventions again, are really centered in the clinical setting. And one of the big questions in that field at the moment is actually how do they translate these practices that have been found to be effective in a clinical setting into the uncontrolled environment of a community setting. And the more research I've done into it, I feel like social workers, especially those perhaps working with the youth that are returning from incarceration could help integrate some of these evidence-based principles in the community-based program. For example, I'm thinking maybe a social worker and a youth are teamed up in the community and can go out and practice these principles together and slowly. It's called prompting and fading. So they would prompt them to remember these steps for certain goals. For example, maybe using public transportation or some other type of task they need to complete. And then fading away as the youth is able to gain mastery over that process and the ability
0: to obtain goals on their own. Wow. Thinking about that, it becomes, there's a definite role for social work in working with individuals who have, particularly adolescents, who have or have been exposed to traumatic brain injury. This comes to mind because we have so many kids who come to, particularly the foster care system, who because of child abuse or neglect, but as well for kids who have had other kinds of problems in the home or in the community, that uh, there's a role for social work to help these kids become reintegrated back into the larger society, and also to help foster parents and people who work in the institutional arena to bring those kinds of skills into the intervention plans for the kids they're working with.
1: Yeah, I've seen studies actually where teachers have done it in their classroom with the youth. I really feel like these principles could easily be translated into some type of community-based program for youth involved in the criminal justice system
0: so we've kind of come a long way here I'm wondering do you have any thoughts about where do we go from here based upon some of the work that you've been able to do
1: I think the most important thing to start or thing that we need to move towards is a universal assessment of youth involved in the criminal justice system for TBI history and again if we do move in that direction We need to make sure that we're adopting assessment tools that have been validated and that are reliable, again, such as the Ohio State University TBI identification method or the traumatic brain injury questionnaire to really get a firm understanding of exactly how extensive is this problem and is it potentially increasing, especially with the higher rates of sports involvement and other things like
0: that. Excellent points. We're kind of coming to the end here. I was wondering if there are any last words that you'd like to leave the listening audience with.
1: I think social work has great potential to really accomplish like transdisciplinary interventions, such as like a community-based program using cognitive rehabilitation principles and also integrating neuroscience around stuff like traumatic brain injury and other issues into social work curriculum and interventions. That can maybe help us move towards a more broad focus on how to address these issues as opposed to just the traditional types of
0: principles that social workers is relied on. I'm hearing more and more about that in the field today, about uh, social work reaching across the boundaries into other disciplines and not only bringing their information or what they have learned but also engaging them more fully in the intervention process so that makes a lot of sense to me well I Chris, I'd like to thank you for your time, and I'm hoping that based upon what I've heard about your work here and the depth of work that you've done, that you're able to continue moving forward or either primarily or secondarily as maybe one of the side areas of your work. But it sounds like it's going to be very important work for a population that sometimes doesn't get the kind of assessment and follow-up that we would like to see to help them successful in reintegrating themselves or bringing themselves back into the larger community absolutely I totally agree well Chris thank you again thank you you have been listening to Chris Vay discuss traumatic brain injury in incarcerated youth and the role for social work we hope that you found this podcast enlightening this is Charles Sims asking you to please join us again at in social work
1: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for
0: listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.